we'll use the pulpit mic. I project pretty well, so I think we're going to be okay. Um, sometimes it's just better to let the air out of the room, and we'll acknowledge that. If you're having difficulty hearing me, just wave your hands or something. We will be okay. So question for us to ponder as we begin to make our way toward God's word in the book of Genesis again today. If you show up to church on any given Sunday and hear a sermon on any given passage of Scripture, what should the conclusion be? Jesus in John chapter 5 says to a Jewish audience, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. He goes on to say to this same audience, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now Moses, many in the room may know, wrote the first five books of our Bible, what we often refer to as the Pentateuch, namely the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So according to Jesus, if you read Moses and you rightly understand Moses, the conclusion is Christ. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is walking with some of his disciples. He appears to them after his resurrection, walks with them on the road to Emmaus. He opens to them the scriptures. They have a meal together that evening. And Christ reveals himself to them at that point. They had not known who he was up until they broke bread together. And then Jesus departs from them and they say to each other in the aftermath of that, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Well, how did he open the scriptures? He opened to them the scriptures about all of the things concerning himself. So that to open the scriptures, to see all of the things that are in them concerning the Christ is our aim yet again today as we're going to look at the book. So now if you have your Bibles with you, with all of that in mind, let's turn to the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking today, as you already know, it was read in your midst earlier, at Genesis chapter 37, verses 2 through chapter 38 and verse 30. I have a two-part message that I hope to deliver this morning. Three points in part one through the narrative. In part two, another three points, one of those points being more explanation, two of them being more reflection. So part one, part two, three points in each, off we go. Part one, point one. I've entitled it Favor and Dreams. Favor and Dreams. We're going to look at chapter 37, verses 2 to 11 together for just a moment. These verses begin with some familiar words to us. These are the generations of blank. We've seen that formula a number of times in the book of Genesis. In this particular case, these are the generations of Jacob. This is the last time that we're going to see this formula show up in the book. And so from this point forward, from chapter 37 and verse 2 through the end of Genesis in chapter 50, Jacob's sons and Joseph in particular will become the focus. 
And in these final chapters, we will also learn how it is that God's people will end up in Egypt. Joseph, we're told, in the second part of verse 2, is 17 years old. He is the second youngest son of Jacob, of Israel. And we're told that he is pasturing the flocks with his brothers. And we're also told of a time when Joseph brought a bad report to his father about some of his brothers. In particular, we're told that he brought a bad report to Jacob about the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. That would be Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, respectively. We're not told in this instance that Jacob had solicited said bad report. This seems like one of those, like, Dad, I hate to tell you this, but you're not going to believe. You're going to be pretty upset, actually, at what Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher are doing. We've all seen this before. You don't have to be a parent to have seen this before. It's not a good vibe, really. And we're going to see that this is going to be a factor in what goes down later. We're also told that Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. He was, after all, the son of his old age, and he was also the son of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. Israel, we're told, makes Joseph a very special coat, a special garment to wear. Favoritism in this family has brought quite a bit of wreckage up to now, has it not? Yes. And it's not going to do good things here. Joseph's brothers hate him, we're told, because of this whole dynamic. This him bringing a bad report business and him being kind of the golden child business. And then we're told about two dreams that Joseph had. The first one he tells to his brothers. He says in his dream that he and his brothers were all out in the field binding sheaves, grain, right? And his sheaf arose and stood upright, and his brother's sheaves bowed down to his. And it's pretty clear the meaning of such a dream. I'm not a, an interpreter of dreams. I don't know that any of you are either, but that's pretty easy, that one. It's pretty low-hanging fruit, right? Clearly, what this points to is Joseph ruling and reigning over his brothers, his brothers bowing down to him. They know that. You can tell that because of how they respond to it. Now, like real talk for a second, you've got to wonder what Joseph is thinking in telling his brothers who already hate him this dream. Seriously. The brothers were told hate Joseph even more because of his dreams and because of the way he talked to them. It's kind of understandable at a human level. Right? Dude comes up in his flamboyant coat telling his brothers that they're going to bow down to him. Now, from the perspective of redemptive history, from God's vantage point that he has given us in the scripture, we know that these dreams are prophetic. And that even what's going to go down in terms of these dreams being fulfilled are going to be redemptive in nature. True. Joseph does not know that. The brothers do not know that at this point. The brothers are filled with hate and with jealousy, both 
are always a result of toxic love of self. And Joseph, for his part, seems to throw gas on the fire with regularity. He is kind of a golden child, and he seems to flaunt that at points. We've seen this movie before. All of this, just kind of setting the table like this, saints, all of this makes what God is going to do through Joseph and in him and what God is going to do with the brothers and in them all the more remarkable. Only God could pull off what's going to happen over the coming years in these guys' lives. We're told of another dream, a second dream that Joseph has. This time he tells his brothers and then he tells his brothers and his dad. In this dream, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to Joseph. This again is pretty easy to interpret. This is dad, this is mom, this is his 11 brothers bowing down to him. Jacob rebukes Joseph on account of the dream. His brothers are again jealous of him and hate him, lest that was unclear. But then we're told that Jacob kept what Joseph said in mind. I mean, for my part, as I've studied this book and you've gone through it with me, we have gone through it together. I think at this point, Jacob's got enough experience with the Lord and how the Lord works. that He's kind of like, I probably need to file this away. But he doesn't know, still doesn't know what the dream means. This brings us to point number two of part one. Point two, I've entitled sold into slavery, sold into slavery. We're going to look at verses 12 to 36 of chapter 37. In verses 12 to 24, Joseph's brothers go to pasture the flocks near Shechem, which is a ways off. In Israel, Jacob is going to send Joseph to his brothers to see how things are going. And Joseph at this point is to report back to him. Tell me how things are going with your brothers. So Joseph goes. And eventually, all because of some random guy finding him, he ends up being able to find his brothers in a place called Dothan. Now, whenever we see just these things that seem to sort of happen, sort of be random in the scripture, they're not random. Like the way this is described, like artistically, from an authorial perspective, is intentional. Like some dude found him in the field. Okay. God's providence went, went, went all over, right? When his brothers see him coming from a distance, probably because of the coat he's wearing, it's pretty identifiable, right? They talk amongst themselves and they plan to kill him. They're going to kill him and throw him in a pit. When you see that word pit, think like cistern, dug into the earth to contain water, right? The story they're going to tell is that a wild animal killed him. Nobody will ever know. Now, Reuben, the oldest son, intervenes. He says, let's not kill him. He suggests that they simply just throw him in a cistern. And his plan is to do that, not kill him, just throw him in a pit because later Reuben's thinking, I'll come back and rescue him and take him back to dad. We're not told exactly why in terms of Reuben's motivation. It's possible that on the one hand, he's acting out of duty as an older brother to protect his younger siblings. That would have been normal as an expectation. It's also probable 
that he's hoping to regain his father's favor by rescuing his father's favorite son. Remember, Reuben had slept with one of Jacob's co-wives, and it was not good. It's not a good thing. So I'm going to get back in dad's good graces by bringing him his favorite son. When Joseph, nonetheless, all of this, when Joseph gets to his brothers, they take his coat off of him and they throw him down in a pit. Then in verses 25 to 28, they just sit down to have lunch. Note how hard-hearted human beings can be. I mean, we all, sadly, naturally, as sons and daughters of Adam, have this in us. Look at how hard-hearted his brothers are. They just threw their boy down a pit to die, presumably. And it's like, let's sit down and have a sandwich, right? We learn later from chapter 42 that Joseph begged his brothers not to do it. And that they saw the distress of his soul. I mean, it wasn't like he just peacefully said, okay, guys, you know, I guess I'll go down in there. That's not how it went down. The brothers, again, another providential thing, right? The brothers looked up and just kind of happened. At that very moment, they just happened to look up and see these traders passing through. They're going down to Egypt, these traders are. Judah, at this point, speaks up and proposes an idea to sell Joseph to these Ishmaelite traders rather than kill him. Now, again, we're not told Judah's motivations wholesale. But the paraphrase, as I read it, and as I studied it and looked at how others have understood it, would be something like this. I mean, guys, we're not going to really profit anything if we kill him. We're not going to make any money if we kill him. Let's just sell him. And I mean, he is our brother after all. You know, he's saying, yeah, it's not good that we kill our brother and we can make a buck. It's kind of a win-win here. So in other words, this is not a virtuous play. On Judah's part. Joseph, we're told, is lifted out of the pit, out of the cistern, and he is sold to the Midianite traders by his brothers, and they took Joseph to Egypt. God's plan advances, even through this ugliness and this sin. In verses 29 to 36, still point two, sold into slavery, right? It becomes clear that Reuben, at least, wasn't present when Judah proposed his plan and while this business of selling Joseph went down because he comes back, goes to the pit, and is like, where is he? He's gone. He tears his clothes. That's a sign of mourning. And he asks, where shall I go? It seems, again, he's worried about what this will mean for him as the eldest brother, that his younger brother has gone missing, and it seems that he's grieved that his plan to regain favor with his father is ruined. The brothers keep scheming. They take Joseph's coat. They dip it in goat's blood. They're going to sell their dad the story that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. They take the coat to Jacob and they ask him to identify whether it is his son's robe or not. He identifies it and understandably Jacob is greatly grieved. His family tries to comfort him, but he refuses to be comforted. His grief was too great. Keep in mind, when you read those words about all of his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, those sons who rose up to comfort him are the same ones who caused his grief and who know that Joseph isn't dead. 
but they're trying to comfort him. Sin and deception and double-mindedness abound. Yet again, we're then told that Joseph was sold to Potiphar down in Egypt, who was captain of Pharaoh's guard. God's plan advances through sin and through wickedness yet again. Now, this is a turning point as I see it in Genesis. This is a turning point in Joseph's life. Up to now, we've thought about it. He's kind of a golden child, immature, lacks awareness and wisdom. From here on out, the only other things recorded for us in the book of Genesis about Joseph are pretty remarkable in terms of his character, his maturity, his wisdom, his compassion. God, it seems, is going to work in this man in such a way that he becomes a rather upright dude. And God is going to do that through very trying circumstances in this man's life. And we're going to be thinking about that in the weeks to come. And how God works in Joseph and uses Joseph and how Joseph even serves as a very gripping type foreshadowing of Christ as a redeemer. That's kind of the trailer for the coming sermons. Before we make our way to point three, just a quick note, because we're going to look at chapter 38. Okay, a quick note. Chapter 38 is kind of an interjection in the story of Joseph. In this chapter, Judah is the focus. We learn about him and we get a glimpse into the development that will need to occur in him. Because he too is going to play a prominent role later on in Egypt as well. He's going to take on a kind of leadership role of the other 11 brothers. But let's learn a little bit about this man. Brings us to point three of part one. Point three, I've entitled this, Judah and Tamar, sin, prostitution, and the promises of God. Again, I'm not trying to be punchy. It's the text. Sin, prostitution, and the promises of God. Now, by the time we get through reading this chapter or considering it, we already read it. We're going to consider it. Any notion that piety is the reason why Judah ends up getting the best blessing from his father is ripped from our hands. God sometimes has to do that. He has to rend stupid things from our hands because we don't tend to think the right way naturally. All right, let's look at verses 1 to 11 of chapter 38. Judah separates from his brothers after this whole business has gone down with Joseph. And he befriends an Adulamite named Hiram. He takes a Canaanite woman, does Judah as his wife, and they have three sons together. Now, in Judah marrying a Canaanite, that's not great. I mean, you've been here through the series, you know that. Like, that's what Esau did, for example. In the course of time, Judah takes a wife for his eldest son, Ur, and the woman's name is Tamar. She and Judah will become the central characters in this very twisted, like, sordid account. Ur, we're told, is a wicked man and is put to death by the Lord. Judah then tells his second son named Onan to take Tamar as his wife and have children with her on behalf of her brother. Or, excuse me, on behalf of his brother. So this is the first time in the scripture that we encounter what is known as a leveret marriage. Right? We're going to read about this at some point in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25, where God even 
prescribes this practice. If a brother dies without having any children, a surviving brother should marry the widow and have children with her to carry on the name and the inheritance of the deceased brother. So that's what is in view here. Onan, for his part, takes Tamar as his wife, but we're told he doesn't want to have kids with her because he knows that the children will not be his, but they will be his brothers. So the lineage and the inheritance will belong to his brother and not him. And this is why he does not ever complete the sexual act. And that is the thing that displeases the Lord. He does not regard his brother. I'm not even going to take the time to talk about all the dumb things that are said from this passage, but there are plenty. We need to understand what the Lord is angry with here. You're intelligent. Read your Bible, right? Onward we move. Onan, we know, is a wicked man. He displeases the Lord and what he does, and so we're told the Lord puts him to death as well. Brief aside, don't have a lot of time to consider this. Just completely step over here for just a second. But I can't because I don't have a microphone over there. So I'm going to stand right here. We must be very careful today as believers to draw straight lines from particular sin to particular punishment from God. The only time it is legitimate to do that is when God's word has said it is so. And so here we know it's true. Because of a particular wickedness, God says judgment. But remember the words of our Lord Jesus in Luke 13, right? Remember the Gentiles that were slaughtered the Galileans, excuse me, that were slaughtered by Pilate, right? Do you think that they were any worse than you? No. Remember the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse than you? No. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So we need to be very careful. John 9, who sinned, Jesus, this man or his parents that he's born blind? Neither, says Christ. I mean, so we've got to be careful. But back to the text. We're told here about particular sin and then particular judgment from God. Then Judah is going to tell Tamar to go back to her father's house and remain a widow until his other son named Shelah grows up. But we're told why he said it to her. He feared that Shelah would die too. So in the mind of Judah, apparently this chick was cursed or something, and I don't want my other son to die. So he's not concerned as he should be as a father-in-law for the well-being of his daughter-in-law. That's an issue. He's manipulative. Verses 12 to 23. We're going to keep moving. In time, Judah's wife dies. And when the time of mourning is over, he heads to a place called Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar hears about this. She is also aware that Shelah has grown up. But Judah has not given him to her to be her husband. He hasn't done what he said he would do. She realizes that to some extent this was all a ruse and she is now going to trap her father-in-law. Now God is going to use this in his providence, but what goes down in this chapter from every angle is not commendable. I trust that goes without saying. She takes off her widow's garments. She puts on a veil like a prostitute would wear and positions herself outside the entrance of a Nahum, which would have been like a crossroads town on the way to Timnah. Hangs out where prostitutes would hang out, cult prostitutes in particular. Then Judah shows up. He sees her. He thinks that she's a cult prostitute, and he decides he's going to hire her services. And he is not hesitant at all. 
It's pretty jarring, like the way that you read it. Just, the Bible is quite blunt often. The two negotiate a price, a young goat. But Tamar asks for a deposit, a pledge of sorts, until the goat could be delivered to her. So Judah ends up giving her his signet, which would have been something he would have, and his cord that he would have worn around his neck, which would have been how he would have sealed correspondence and things like this. And then he gives her his staff. I mean, this is kind of the equivalent of like giving somebody your ID and your car keys or something in today's vernacular, right? Until payment can be sent. So they have relations and Tamar concedes through this sexual encounter. She then heads off and puts back on her widow's garments. And of course, Judah is going to now attempt to pay her. And when the goat is sent by way of his friend, she's nowhere to be found, obviously. Hiram reports back to Judah, who's like, well, bro, I guess we need to just let this thing go. Or we're going to be laughed at. It's not a good look, not a good optic. We'll move on. Which brings us to verses 24 to 26. And this is where the drama gets particularly thick. Three months pass, we're told. Judah has people coming to him to tell him, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Now, that word is like, effectively, she has played the harlot. She has engaged in prostitution. Moreover, she is pregnant by that harlotry. And then Judah, in a moment of what can only be called spectacular self-righteousness, says, bring her out, let her be burned. Things are about to be brought into the light, though. As Tamar is being brought out to be burned, she sends to Judah that she's pregnant by the one to whom these particular articles belong. And obviously, along with that word, she has sent the articles. And she says, please identify whose these are. So he does. Can't imagine what that was like to be present for that. He identifies them and says, she is more righteous than I am. Because I did not give her my son like I said I would do. It's quite a scene. This is a David and Nathan kind of scene, right? You're familiar with that? Where David has sinned by sleeping with Bathsheba and having her husband effectively murdered. And Nathan the prophet comes to him to confront him and call out his sin, tells him this parable, right, of this man who had this one lamb that he loved so much and this king that had everything in the world. And how the king was hungry, wanted to have a feast, and then sins to take that one man's lamb when he had everything. And David is rightly indignant. And Nathan the prophet says, that's you. You're him. This is one of those moments. You are the man. And as we look at this, like there is... Sin, yes. And there is repentance here, saints. Like, look at this. How God works. Judah's response, she is more righteous than I am. Just like David's response later to Nathan, gutted, pins Psalm 51, is the response that God desires. 
When God gets to work in the lives of his children, this is often what it looks like. Think about how God works in us to sanctify, to transform. He often does that how? By showing us the depth of our sin. By showing us the depth of our need. We don't like it. We don't like it when God sanctifies us that way, do we? It hurts. It's painful. We'd rather, you know, sanctification just occur through like our really consistent, solid obedience. But God does some of his best work this way. He shows us the depth of our sin, the depth of our need. He makes it crystal clear to us that we are not nearly as righteous as we think we are. And he repents us. And then moving forward, all kinds of good things occur in our lives. We are more aware of the corruption that remains in our flesh. We're more aware of our need of Christ. We are humbled. And we grow in awareness and wisdom in a way that can keep us from future sin. Praise God that he does this. He still does this in your life and mine. God is good and he's faithful to sanctify and repent us. And he does it with Judah here. We're told very end of verse 26 that Judah did not have relations with Tamar again. Verses 27 to 30, though, this pregnancy is going to come to term. Tamar is going to give birth to twin sons. There's effectively this kind of competition to get out of the womb. And a boy, a son named Perez, ends up coming out first, followed by his brother. That brings us to the end of point three of part one, now to part two of the message, also containing three points. First point of just some explanation. We'll try to do it briefly. And then the second two points of reflection. Part 2.1, some explanation on this sin in the era of the patriarchs. I want to just explain some stuff. Sin in the era of the patriarchs. The era of the patriarchs, when you hear that, think Abraham until the law was given. Okay. Remember that at this point in redemptive history, the law had not been written down yet, had not been given yet. But then we're mindful, should be, of some of the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, reads this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of of the one who was to come. The sin of people in the era of the patriarchs was not like the sin of Adam. What does that mean? It means that they are not breaking a specific positive command that God gave them, like Adam did in the garden. Nor is it like the sin of people who live after the law is given, because that too is the violation of something God has clearly revealed and given. But the people are still sinning. Though this era of redemptive history is unique, the people are still sinning. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 5. They're violating 
the moral law of God that is written into humanity and written into the creation. That's the point. And that condemns them as it condemns every man. And you're thinking, okay, brother, what about this law that's written into humans and law that's written into creation? Where do we learn of that? Romans chapter 2, verses 12 and following is the most clear place to look. Paul writes these words. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So even though these people in this era do not have the law written down, make no mistake, they are sinning. They're dying as a result of sinning. This whole business, too, of Gentiles having the law written on their hearts and thereby knowing right and wrong, it's been obvious in the book of Genesis. Exhibit A, Pharaoh in Egypt with Abraham, chapter 12. Pharaoh's like, what you doing is wrong, man. You just lied to us. Told her she was your sister. She's your wife. Not okay. He knew. And regarding God's people in this era, while they don't have the law written down, they know that many of the things they're doing are wrong. We've seen it over and over and over again because of the moral law of God written into the world God has made. Reuben, and it seems Judah to some extent, know that it's not good to kill their brother. Judah knows that what he did with Tamar was wrong. Jacob knew that his household should put away idols when they were going to Bethel for him to worship the Lord, etc., etc. They knew. Now, through the entirety of this era, Spirit of redemptive history that we're learning about in Genesis. God, alongside the moral law piece, God is making a bunch of promises. He's revealing himself to people and he's promising them wonderful things. So, in light of all of that, these people that we've been considering, they're just like us in that they're violating the moral law of God left and right. They are doubting the promises of God left and right and are taking matters into their own hands in doubting the promises of God left and right. In all of these ways, they're sinning. So, in the face of this, that's point one. I hope that's clarified, because I've gotten some questions from people, like, how do we think about sin when the law hadn't been given, right? All right, this brings us to reflection two. Reflection two and three are related, but number two is that in the face of this, sinning, God is relentless in showing himself to be a redeemer. And on points two and three, I'll go ahead and make the public service announcement. You may be sitting there, you're thinking, bro, we've considered some of these things before. I'm like, you better believe we have. We're going to consider them again today because it's what this is about so clearly. The gospel is often referred to as a diamond. And what we do functionally in the church every week, 52 times a year, we slightly rotate that thing so that we can get a better perspective on its beauty and the wonder that is the work of redemption accomplished through Christ. So I trust no one is bored by thinking about God being a redeemer again. It's the only reason we're here today. So now that that's been said, we're going to look at what the text has for us in terms of just things that are inferred from it and seen in it. We have seen throughout the book of Genesis and in our text today, quite clearly, that God 
redeems and works, not just in the face of sin. He works even through sin to accomplish redemption. He never sins himself. The Lord is upright and never sins. The Bible is clear about that. And he is so wise. And he is such a redeemer that he even uses wickedness to accomplish these redemptive purposes. Praise be to his name. You remember Lot's daughters from Genesis 19. Horrifically ugly account. We learned that through that incest, Moab becomes a nation. We thought about how later on, fast forward some time, there's a woman named Ruth who is a Moabite woman who ends up being a part of the line of King David and therefore the line of Jesus. It's quite a story in its own right. We've already thought about that. In our text today, there's this ugly, like cringeworthy episode with Judah and Tamar. Right? Where a man has relations with his father-in-law who he thinks is a prostitute. I mean, it is ugly. Neither of them are upright in what they do. And their union results in the birth of a son named Perez. Now, where else does he show up in the scripture? Keep in your mind, God is a savior. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Yes, that one. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Is God a redeemer? He's a redeemer. Gets better. Matthew chapter 1. Where else does Perez show up? The first words of our New Testament read this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez. Yes, that one. And Zerah by Tamar. Yes, that one. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Is God a redeemer? You better believe he is. As astonishing as the events of chapter 38 are, as jarring as they are, the most astonishing thing is that Jesus comes out of this lineage. For real. But it's just like God, is it not? It's just like him. Our God is the one who brings salvation out of ruin and life out of death. In the lineage of Jesus Christ is incest, deceit, Lust, lying, prostitution, which is exactly why he came. He assumed the humanity that had been corrupted by every conceivable and imaginable sin under heaven. So that he might rescue sinners from it. We've been considering the accounts of the lives of God's people here in Genesis. And there's been a lot of sin. And in Jesus taking on human flesh, he would take all of that sin upon himself, all of it. And you know what? He took ours too. God's people were certainly no better than other people. 
God's people are us. Certainly no better than other people. Let's get that straight. They were great sinners. We are great sinners. They were downright wicked at points. We are downright wicked at points. And yet God saves us. He would even work through their sin. He even works through our sin to do it. But through their sin, spectacularly, he worked to bring the Savior. Through immorality, he brought the Christ. And the Christ is the point. And the Christ is the goal. You may say, what's the point of this Judah and Tamar piece? Yeah, we had some wonderful thoughts about God and his faithfulness and repentance. Praise God. But what is the point? Of Judah and Tamar, it's the son who's going to hail from them, who would save them and us. Which brings us to point three, also a point of reflection. Also things we rejoice in repeatedly. Heading for point three, redemption is the point of the Bible. Redemption through Christ to the praise of God's glorious grace. Say that again. Redemption is the point of the Bible. Redemption through Christ to the praise of God's glorious grace. And you're like, brother, is that an overstatement to summarize the scripture that way? Not at all. Why? Because God told us that this is what it's about. Well, when did he do that? Well, Paul in Ephesians chapter one pulls the curtain back and lets us see what was in the mind and heart of God before the world was even made. The plan amongst the members of the Godhead, the covenant made. Between the Father and the Son was that God would save a people by His grace and make him, make them excuse me, His sons and daughters forever. And that He would do that through the work of God the Son. So, with all due respect to anyone who might disagree, we ought never be shocked. If God tells us that the point of the universe is that, that he's a redeemer and he's going to redeem people through God the Son. Why would we ever be shocked that the entire Bible from cover to cover is about that? Because people come up with all kinds of things that they think the Bible's about. It's not that. With all due respect, it's not correct. Then beginning in Genesis 1 and chapter 1, we see this covenant of redemption that God made before the world started actually play out in time and space. That's what happens beginning in Genesis 1 and chapter 1. We've seen the great flashback that happened before scene one. Then the movie begins and God's going to save people. In the first three chapters of Genesis, I'm going to do this super fast. We learn of how God made everything and how he made a covenant with Adam that Adam broke. And in that, we learn what we need in order to be reconciled to God. What is that? In short, we need someone to come and accomplish what Adam failed to accomplish. Full stop. So that's set. And God promised he would come. And the whole Old Testament is about his coming. Who he would be and what he would do. That's a legitimate summary of the Old Testament. The promised one's coming. Here's who he is. Here's what he'll do. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And just continuing to track like biblical revelation in terms of the point of the scripture. Think about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Just for a moment with me. There is tons, obviously, a ton that could be said about the life and ministry of Christ. I'm going to try to do this in five minutes. But track. This week I had the privilege of preaching at 
the chapel service at a private school here in the area where some of the children in this church go, including two of mine. The mission this fall, I'm on a rotation of guys that speak in this chapel. This is my first time ever doing it. We're going through Matthew's gospel, and each week in chapel, the respected preacher that day takes a miracle of Jesus and, and does a 12-minute talk for the kids. So I started out that talk with this question. What is the point of the miracles of Jesus? I asked some questions, you know, like, hey, is it just so that Jesus could do cool stuff? And kids are like, no. And, you know, is it just so that he can show his power? No. You know, is it just to help people? Well, no, because they all died. Right? Is it about our faith? Yes, yeah, certainly we receive everything Christ did for us by faith, but miracles, the miracles of Christ are not about our faith. What's the point then? So then we looked at this miracle from Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus heals two blind men. They're sitting, you know, near a house by the road. Jesus passes by, and these two Jewish guys holler out to him, have mercy on us, son of David. And then he heals these two blind men. So what's the point of the miracles of Jesus and the ministry of Christ for that matter? All right, two things, even from this week, like this chapel address. Number one, Jesus is son of David. What's the significance there? Two Jewish men calling him that is a big deal. Why? Because God had promised David some stuff. That David would have a son who would sit on the throne forever and rule in righteousness and peace and justice provided he kept the law. So this whole Jesus as the son of David piece is effectively that. He is him. He is the son of David who would keep the law and represent the people and rule and reign in righteousness forever in the land that God would give his people called the new earth. Right, that's one. Two, he healed blind guys. What's up with that? Well, you remember John the Baptist. Everybody knows who he is, right? So Luke 7, Matthew 11, John's in prison. His life is probably coming to an end. He knows. He sends messengers to Jesus, asks him a question through them. What is it? Are you the one? I'm about to die. Are you the one? Or should we look for somebody else? And how does Jesus respond? He says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The deaf hear. The lepers are cleansed. The lame walk. The poor have good news preached to them. Why did he answer like that? Because that's what the prophet said the Savior would do. Isaiah 35, when Isaiah writes in verse 4, these words, the Lord will come with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. The very next words are, the blind will receive their sight. The lame will walk. The lepers will be cleansed. Right? Isaiah 61, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right? I've come to preach good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. Why did he talk like that, Jesus? Because he's the one who the prophets wrote about. That's what he's doing. That's the point of his ministry. The whole point of the miracles, the preaching, the ministry, the healing, all of it, is to demonstrate that he's the one promised in the Garden of Eden, for goodness sakes. The one who would come to crush the snake's head and save everybody. The one promised to Abraham through whom the nations would be blessed. The one of whom the prophets wrote. The one who would come to save us. And he would do that by obeying God's law perfectly his whole life. He was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he would do that by suffering 
He was perfected by suffering, Hebrews 2, 5. He learned to suffer as a man, Christ did. And he did it perfectly, and he suffered in his death. And in doing all of that, he took our sin upon himself and satisfied for it, and he gives us his righteousness, gives it. So it's why we can come today and look at God's law and rejoice. It's why we can come today and say words like forgiven, justified, righteous. It's why we can talk about the fact that we're going to be sanctified, transformed by God, and that's a good word. All on account of Christ and what he accomplished. By faith, we're united to him and everything that is his is ours. It's the message of the gospel. He took our sin. We get his righteousness. And in him, we get an inheritance. In him, we are sealed with his spirit. We will be transformed and conformed into his image. In him is resurrection and eternal life. We'll be ripped from the grave one day and we'll dwell with God forever because of Christ. He, who he is and what he did is the point of the whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So he is the appropriate conclusion to every sermon that will ever be preached in this poll. If he's not, fire me, sincerely. And the beauty of it Not only is the Bible really about Christ, we can trust him. We can trust him because he delights to save. He is compassionate. He is gentle and lowly in heart, and he gives rest for weary pilgrims, weary souls. He offers. So that's the takeaway. You're like, okay, brother, I I want some handles to walk out of here with. Two, one, God repents us. Praise be to his name, like he did you. Two, Trust Christ, man. Trust him. Rest in him. Believe in him. Abide in him. Live there. For all of us who are in Christ, united to him by faith, all really is well. It is. And all because of him and what he did in the place of sinners such as us. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Let's thank him. Ask him to be with us even as we come to his table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We pray that you, by your spirit, would sustain our faith in him, strengthen our faith in him, impart faith in him to those who don't yet trust him. It's the greatest thing in the world to be in Christ. We thank you that you have given that gift to so many. Lord, we pray for ourselves that you would continue to use what's happening in this service as we even plan to come to your table in just a moment. Remind us through the bread and the cup that just as surely as we put it in our mouths, Christ died for us. Strengthen us through this meal. Remind us of the unity we have with each other and the union that we all have with Christ. It's the greatest thing for us to know. Teach us again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.